Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 77, A Hungarian Requiem. Now first, you probably noticed that something is different. That's because I finally took the plunge and invested in a, well, basically a professional quality uh, mic setup. Uh, I've been using the same old mic, which is decent, but for, for about five years, uh, and I decided it was finally time to really kind of <laughs> splurge a bit and get something much nicer. So huge, huge, huge thank you to everyone who's ever supported the podcast financially, whether that's the one-time PayPal donors or patrons uh, on Patreon, all of you really made it happen and, and really turned this into an amazing year for the podcast. I mean, we've got a new website, new audio equipment, um, all this kind of stuff. I've been really trying to reinvest, and it's all thanks to you. Now, a few other quick announcements. First, as always, thanks to our specific new patrons. We've got Yavor Danaev, Patrick St. Jean, Dmitry Kolev, and Christina Moore Gotcher. And of course, Helen Towers increased her pledge a bit. So thank you, Helen. And thank you, everyone. Uh, really, thanks to all. Uh, it means a lot helping kind of keep the Patreon level steady. Um, also, we're now on Spotify. So in case you're a Spotify listener, you can find us there. And one last announcement. It's really the episode of announcements. We are nearing the end of this season. Basically, the end of the year is going to be right around the end of the season. So if anyone has any questions you'd like me to answer as I do the recap, which will be around January 2019, get in touch. Send me a question, and I'll try to make sure the recap addresses it. All right, now let's get started. Last time, we saw Suleiman explode onto the scene, putting down a revolt in Syria, taking Belgrade, taking the Croatian capital of Knin, and ultimately taking Rhodes before some years to rest his exhausted army and begin establishing a naval presence in the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. In the meantime, Hungary has continued to weaken as shifting European alliances leave it out on its own. Now, with encouragement from France, Sultan Suleiman is marching to the Hungarian border. It's the spring of 1526, and the bickering nobility of Hungary are about to get a rude wake-up call. Now, someone was already awake. Paul Tomori, a Catholic archbishop and warrior, had been put in charge of military affairs in southern Hungary three years previously. During these years, he had worked frantically to build a second line of defense to function now that the main line, and Belgrade in particular, had fallen to the Ottomans. However, he couldn't get any support and was forced to use his own money to help pay for repairs and improvements. But it was difficult to predict just where the Ottomans would approach. Would they come through Transylvania, crossing the Carpathian Mountains, or perhaps through the flat plains of Serbia, now that Belgrade wasn't in their way? To counter this, Hungarian forces had to deploy three separate armies to be prepared for any approach, one to guard the mountain passes into Transylvania, another in Croatia, and the main force, under the young King Louis himself, 
in the center. The king, for the record, was just 20 years old at this moment. But by the time it was clear that the Ottomans were taking the central route, the Croatian and Transylvanian forces were too far away to reach the main army in time to assist. As the Ottomans approached, they easily took one of the central fortresses on that second line of defense prepared by Tomori, that of, well, what's now known as Novi Sad, about 50 kilometers north of Belgrade on the Danube. It fell in mid-July. Really no surprise, considering Hungary was systematically undermanning its fortresses, and Novi Sad was no exception. And yet with its fall, there was now nothing but 400 kilometers of clean, easy Hungarian countryside between the Ottoman army and the capital, Buda. There wasn't a single fortress in the path of that grand Ottoman army. Now, King Louis initially wished to retreat, but the Hungarian War Council decided to march forward and meet the Ottomans without the two other armies. They chose a marshy, rolling landscape near the town of Mohac, by the time the Ottomans arrived, they outnumbered the Hungarians by nearly two to one, fielding around 50,000 soldiers compared to somewhere between 25 and 30,000 Hungarians and allied troops. The Hungarian strategy relied on just choosing the location of the battle, hoping that the Ottomans would be exhausted from the long summer march and could be engaged in many smaller kind of mini engagements, which would help to nullify their numerical advantage. The Hungarians also wanted a flat plain which would allow their world-class cavalry to be used to its full advantage, although of course this would mean the same for the Ottoman Sepahis. Still, the Hungarian army of around say, 25 to 30,000, as mentioned, was really built around these expensive knights, while the Ottoman force was centered around janissaries armed with muskets. Hungary had the technology to equip itself just as well as the Ottomans with gunpowder weapons, but the power of the nobility had ensured that notions of chivalry and a reverence for armored knights would stand above actual military needs. But this could also be seen as a truly European army, not a, a simple Hungarian one. Within its ranks were Hungarians, Serbians, Poles, Bohemians, Germans, Croats, and Bavarians. Facing them was an army that, as we all know by now, was largely built around Balkan peoples, including Bulgarians, in the form of both the Janissaries and levied soldiers, alongside the Turkish Sepahis and a variety of Anatolian infantry and cavalry. The Ottoman artillery also outnumbered that of the Hungarians four to one, Again, showing that the Ottomans are the ones who are really focused on fighting modern warfare. The Ottomans arrived on the Mohach Plain in the early afternoon, fanning out and preparing for battle. The Ottoman left wing of Balkan troops arrived first, and before the left wing of largely Anatolian troops could get into position, the left advanced into the plain to go ahead and meet the Hungarians, while also sending some cavalry to attempt to outflank the Hungarian right wing facing them. The Hungarians could see an opportunity to destroy the Ottoman left wing before the rest of their army would be ready to engage, and so King Louis ordered a general attack. 
The Hungarian right wing rushed forward to meet the advancing Ottoman forces as the Hungarian center braved a storm of Ottoman gunfire to make their way across the flat land separating the two armies. The Hungarian right successfully pushed back the numerically superior Ottoman left before pivoting to challenge the Ottoman center at its flank. King Louis himself plunged into the battle with his guard, seeing victory within his grasp. As they pressed forward, a Hungarian bullet even struck the armor of Suleiman himself, though the Sultan didn't suffer any major wound as a result. But it was at this moment that the Ottoman numerical superiority really came into play. As bad as the situation was for them, they had reserves they could throw into the breach to break the Hungarian momentum. And that's what they did. Soon, cavalry of the Ottoman left wing reformed and attacked the Hungarian cavalry, striking at their center from behind. Soon, it became clear that the Hungarian attack had lost all of its momentum and needed to withdraw, but in the chaos, that proved impossible. The Hungarian commander of this wing was now dead, and the situation was getting more and more dangerous by the moment. The Hungarians turned their minds from victory to protecting the king, who was now embroiled in the fighting. At this moment, the Hungarian right wing began to collapse and retreat along with the left, leaving the Hungarian infantry in the center increasingly exposed. That infantry was soon surrounded. As they're pounded by Ottoman guns, they knew that there was no way to escape, and so they tightened their formation to face the coming storm together. The Ottoman cavalry charged into walls of Hungarian pikes, faced out waves of Hungarian bullets, but it was only a matter of time before the remaining infantry was utterly destroyed. As the sun set over the bloody battlefield, littered with some 15,000 Hungarian dead, including around a thousand of its nobility, as well as several thousand Ottomans, King Louis had escaped, only to be thrown off his horse while attempting to ride up a steep ravine. The young king fell into a stream and was prevented from getting up by his heavy armor. He drowned there at the age of 20, with no legitimate heirs though he probably had one illegitimate son, but that was no matter. Upon finding his body, Suleiman said, quote, I came indeed in arms against him, but it was not my wish that he should be thus cut off before he scarcely tasted the sweets of life and royalty. End quote. Now, Hungary was leaderless, and with only the small Hungarian armies of Croatia and Transylvania still left, and Frankly, they didn't stand a chance against the main Ottoman army. The way to Buda was open. Suleiman sacked the city and then retreated. At this time, occupying Hungary was too much of an ordeal as it would have left Ottoman forces exposed far out into the open Pannonian plain, which made the country so vulnerable to begin with. In addition, there was a revolt by Turkoman tribes off in central Anatolia, which required the Sultan's attention. But still, despite this crushing victory over Hungary, it wasn't time to fully conquer the country just yet. And so Hungary was left with a power vacuum. Two candidates stepped in to claim the throne. One was John Zapolya, 
arguably the most powerful noble in the country and the man in charge of its largest remaining army, the Transylvanian force. The other was, well, I'll give you a moment to guess. Well, you can probably at least guess the family. It was none other than Ferdinand of Austria, brother of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and brother-in-law to the now dead Louis II. The country further fractured over this choice with the lower nobility choosing the noble who was one, Hungarian, and two, well-known to them, uh, i.e. John. While the higher nobility saw, on the other hand, that there was more power to come from allying with the Habsburgs. Both men were proclaimed king by assemblies in different parts of the country, with Ferdinand finding support amongst the Croatian nobles and securing power there as well. Almost immediately, the two kings turned to fight each other. Though there is mention that the Habsburgs turned down an anti-Ottoman alliance, uh, still they were wanted to sort of kick out Zapolya. So Ferdinand moved in and quickly conquered Buda, while Zapolya was distracted with a peasant uprising. Yes, in Hungary, you it is possible for them to get even more divided. I mean, it's amazing. You've got the nobility divided against itself. You have the peasants divided against everyone. The country is really just in shambles. But once Zapolya put down that peasant revolt, the two forces met in September. Now remember, Mohac had only happened in August, and so the king had been dead, well, mere weeks, and yet a civil war, more or less, was already underway. The Austrians won that first battle with nearly twice the soldiers and vastly superior German mercenaries. So, for now, Ferdinand had the upper hand. Zapolio returned to Transylvania and mustered a new army, marching it to challenge Ferdinand yet again. This time, they were more equally matched, each fielding around 15,000 men. But internal fighting between Zapolio's Serbian and Polish forces, well, you could say this helped contribute to yet another loss for him, leading him to flee to Poland. There, he became desperate and approached Suleiman himself, knowing that the Ottomans would prefer to see Hungary dominated by a local king who was loyal to them, rather than becoming a new province of the powerful Habsburgs. Now, quick note, also around this time, the Ottomans finally conquered the mighty Bosnian fortress of Yais, further weakening what little remained of the Hungarian and Croatian border defenses, and creating yet another staging point for more incursions to the north. Now, importantly, a year before all of this, Stephen IV of Moldavia had died and been succeeded by Petru Raras, the illegitimate son of Stephen the Great. Petru initially supported Ferdinand. However, seeing his chance to ingratiate himself with the Ottomans and gain some territory in Transylvania, he then decided to help Zapolya in exchange for a castle. So now Zapolya had his agreement the Ottomans would help him in exchange for Hungary becoming their vassal, and Moldavia would help in exchange for a castle. And so the stage was set. Suleiman marched for the border from his base in Bulgaria, most likely leaving from Sofia. Before he reached Hungary, Zapolya and his Moldavian allies had already won a major victory against Ferdinand. But the Sultan's armies were facing trouble as heavy spring rains in Bulgaria and Serbia prevented them from bringing their artillery and causing general logistics problems. 
With Ferdinand already defeated, Zapolia and Suleiman joined forces with the Moldavians and took, well, retook Buda before heading for their ultimate prize, Vienna. Now, Ferdinand, after his loss, had fled to Bohemia, and Charles V was off fighting France, and so he could only send mercenaries to help protect his capital. The city's defenders frantically put defenses in place, blocking entrances and destroying buildings, really anything to help reinforce the walls, to help prepare for a proper siege. Fortunately for them, the army which arrived in late September was substantially depleted from the long, long march from Sofia, and, well, the bad weather didn't help. Without the cannons and siege equipment lost to Bulgaria's wet roads, the army was, well, rather unprepared for a siege. Still, Suleiman demanded Vienna's surrender and was unsurprisingly refused. The Ottomans settled into a siege anyways. For weeks, their sappers mined under the walls to try to destroy them, only to fight it out with counter-sappers in the dark and narrow passageways they dug beneath the city. By October, things were not looking good for Suleiman and the Ottomans. More rain had fallen, and he was facing some more supply problems, with the men, unsurprisingly, becoming very upset with the lack of progress. And so the Sultan decided to make one final push to take the city. That push failed. Now, as snow began to fall, Suleiman was forced to retreat, accepting he had finally met that new thing a substantial, major defeat. And so the slow retreat began, with snow preventing much of the Ottoman supplies from ever returning to Ottoman lands. The campaign wasn't a total disaster for the Ottomans. The Habsburgs had certainly been weakened, and Zapolya was now an Ottoman vassal in charge of the Hungarian capital of Buda. And so, well, Suleiman could and did portray it all as a great victory when he returned back to Constantinople. But the Ottomans sustained heavy losses, and the pressure put on the Habsburgs led to an improvement of relations between Charles V and the Pope. As a result, Charles finally formally was recognized by the Pope as Holy Roman Emperor the next year in 1530. However, while events had been progressing in Hungary, plenty had been happening far off to the southeast. In 1527, all the way back when Zapolya and Ferdinand were fighting for the very first time, Ottoman Admiral Selman Reis made, makes Yemen recognize Ottoman sovereignty. Now, this inclusion of Yemen into the empire allowed the Ottomans to make the Red Sea an Ottoman lake and prevent further Portuguese incursions into the sea. They could sort of block it at the straits. But the Portuguese still weren't done. In 1532, they attacked the city of Diu, around 250 kilometers from what's now Mumbai in western India. A combined force of Ottomans and soldiers from the local Gujarat Sultanate successfully held off the Portuguese. However, this didn't prevent them from gaining a foothold in this part of India, as they simply diverted their attacks elsewhere, and within a few years they had signed a peace treaty and effectively taken control of the area. This meant that Portugal now had fortresses and garrisons to help prop up its presence in the Indian Ocean, further challenging the Ottomans there. Still, 
Operations in the Indian Ocean were being conducted by Salman Reis, the admiral, as Suleiman had set his eyes firmly on Hungary and Austria. He wasn't going to be distracted by events far away in the Indian Ocean. In 1530, right after Suleiman retreated from his first attempt at Vienna, Ferdinand counterattacked, retaking important fortresses like Estragon, but failing to retake Buda. The Voivoda of Wallachia had also taken this moment to break with the Ottomans and ally with Ferdinand, but he was ultimately killed in internal fighting over the matter. Two years later, Suleiman's response came as a massive Ottoman army once again left the gates of Constantinople, heading for Vienna. But instead of taking the typical route, Suleiman moved into the Hungarian territory which had just been captured by Ferdinand. The Habsburg army was withdrawn, knowing it stood little chance against the Ottomans in open battle. Well, at least not that army, because Charles V himself was gathering a far larger force in Regensburg off in Germany, preparing to hopefully take on the Ottomans. Now, this is setting up for a major confrontation, with the Ottomans finally set to perhaps meet a force which can match them in size and strength. But in the meantime, the Ottomans were still in Hungary and taking fortress after fortress, many surrendering without a fight. Now this brought them to Koseg, a lightly defended castle on the Hungarian-Austrian border. That's where it is today. It's still just on the Hungarian side of that border. And they got there on August 5th. Koseg was defended by just 700 soldiers. And yet the Ottomans were surprised to meet fierce resistance there. Over 25 days, the Ottomans battered the walls, dug under them, and made 19 major assaults. And yet, Koseg remained. On August 30th, a kind of surrender was negotiated. But by this point, the summer was coming to an end. The rains had come and that massive army of Charles V had reached Vienna. Suleiman could see that there was simply no point in continuing on to his objective, and so he was forced to return home. Somehow, little Koseg and its 700 soldiers had managed to delay and ultimately stop an Ottoman force of perhaps as many as 100,000 soldiers. Still, Suleiman had taken many fortresses and once again reinforced the position of King Zapolya and his Ottoman rulers. No surprise, though, with the Ottoman withdrawal, the Habsburgs quickly stepped in and reoccupied much of this territory. Now, just at this moment, the war well, was pretty clearly in stalemate. The Habsburgs were never really willing or able to actually invade Ottoman territory, while Suleiman, for himself, for himself, he kept failing to deliver a killing blow. But it was at this moment that a long-dreamed-of Habsburg idea finally came to fruition. Now, there had been several problems between the Ottomans and the Safavid Persians in recent years, disagreements over the border and all those kinds of things. But in 1532, just as Suleiman was trying to attack Vienna for the second time, things escalated and war finally broke out between the empires. For obvious reasons, this pushed Suleiman to the negotiating table with the Habsburgs so he could deal with Persia in the east. So in 1533, the Treaty of Constantinople was agreed to. 
Zapolya was recognized as the legitimate king of Hungary. Ferdinand was forced to withdraw his claim. And of course, he remained an Ottoman vassal. Interestingly, though, Ferdinand also recognized Suleiman as father and Suleiman's grand vizier as brother. Now, this probably sounds a bit strange, but essentially it meant that Ferdinand was on the same level as the Ottoman grand vizier. And in doing this, both he and his brother Charles V had to agree that the only emperor they would recognize would be Suleiman, which, to be frank, is weird because Charles V had the title Holy Roman Emperor, but I don't know, none of the sources I could find really could make sense of that. Now to top it off, the Austrians had to pay annual tribute to the Ottomans. The overall result was that Suleiman more or less achieved his goals. He didn't really want to conquer Vienna, evidenced by the fact that he didn't really try to conquer Hungary, which was far closer. But what he really wanted was to establish a loyal vassal state in Hungary and to weaken the Habsburgs, to lessen the danger they posed. The new frontier between the Ottomans and the Habsburgs, which is now the Austrian-Hungarian border, well, it was quickly fortified by both sides as they settled into an armed and uneasy peace. Now, a quick note, that guy who succeeded the last Voivoda of Wallachia, well, he had been busy during these years. He uh, got drunk, went off to ride his horse somewhere, and managed to drown in a river in 1532. His successor was assassinated while hunting three years later, ultimately bringing in the far more formidable Radu Paisi to the throne, uh, who returned Wallachia to a policy of being a loyal Ottoman vassal, at least for now. And in the meantime, well, the war with Persia was on, with the Ottomans capturing Tabriz and Baghdad under the command of the Grand Vizier as Suleiman moved to join him. However, the Shah, Tahmasp I, used a scorched earth strategy which prevented further Ottoman gains. Still, by 1535, the Ottomans had annexed most of Iraq, and in the meantime, another Ottoman force had just conquered Tunis, from a Habsburg loyal ruler. So by 1535, though, Charles V assembled a massive fleet and an army and retook Tunis uh, after defeating an Ottoman fleet in the Mediterranean. This defeat of the Ottomans finally pushed them into a formal alliance with France in 1536. And, well, that's where we're going to sort of leave things today. With the Ottomans turning Hungary into a pliant vassal state, fighting the Habsburgs to a stalemate as both sides set up a grand two-front alliance, the Habsburg and the Safavid Persians against the Ottomans and the French, and fighting raging all the way from India to North Africa to, this, well, the walls of Vienna. Next time, we'll see these alliances come into a conflict which could be called even a world war, with battles raging all over the place, as I just mentioned. Each alliance has the potential to destroy the Ottomans or the Habsburgs in a massive two-front war, but, well, the question is, can any of them actually pull it off? Both sides have dreamed of these kinds of grand alliances, of really destroying one another, but as we've seen in this episode, they both failed time and time again to make real gains. And so, can Suleiman pull it off? Can he, well, be magnificent? Tune in next time and find out. This episode was written and produced by me. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. 
Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast on bghistorypodcast.com. That'll be released soon. And as always, Uspech.